Welcome to Industry Focus, the show that dives into a different sector of the stock market every single day. Today is Wednesday, July the 10th, and we're talking healthcare. I'm your host, Shannon Jones. I am joined once again by all-around good guy, healthcare guru, Todd Campbell. Todd, we missed you. The people missed you. So glad to have you back on the show. Oh, it's great to be back. You know, I, I, I love to do hands-on research, you know, so I figure I might as well go get this crazy eye surgery and see what all this eye surgery is all about and see if there's any stock investing tips. Unfortunately, no, there weren't. <laughs> no stock ideas. Uh, it was all for yeah, not, no, Todd. It was all for not. Well, I don't know. You know, I do have a lens from Bausch & Lohm now sewn into the back of my eye, so maybe I should be paying more attention to them. <laughs> <laughs> well, so glad to have you back, especially for this week, because we've got a lot to catch up on. Uh, first and foremost, we're going to be going into some news that came out of the marijuana industry and also giving some updates in the gene therapy space as it relates to hemophilia. So glad to have you back on the show, Todd. Uh, let's kick things off. With the news heard around the marijuana world, um, really can't underscore just how big of a development that came out of Canopy Growth on July the 3rd. This was the half day of trading right before <laughs> the stock market was closed on July the 4th, by the way. <laughs> Don't you love how they do that? I right? love you know, how they yeah. do that. I was literally um, driving in the car on the way to North Carolina, and my phone started going off. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. No way. But the news heard around the world is that Bruce Linton, co-CEO, is no longer CEO of Canopy Growth. Todd, there's a lot more to this story than meets the eye. Probably one of the more fascinating developments that I've seen. Really unexpected, I think, for a lot of people that have been following this space. Truly surprising, but maybe as we dive deeper into the story, we'll realize that we shouldn't be as surprised, perhaps, uh, that this has happened. I think that what made it so surprising is that Linton was one of the more vocal and successful advocates for the legalization of marijuana and the creation of marijuana markets and the mainstreaming, if you will, of legalization and, um, and, and it as a business opportunity that you know, should be considered by investors. I mean, he was, he was vocal, he was at the forefront, and he took a very small fledgling company uh, canopy growth operating out of a very small old Hershey chocolate factory and turned it into the biggest publicly traded marijuana stock on the planet and uh, the largest in terms of sales of the marijuana growers. So a very successful entrepreneur. Um, and like you said, you know, surprising and interesting. Um, because it could very, you know, Shannon, we'll, we'll dive right into it. Right. So, so why, <laughs> why did they get rid of Linton? Right. If I'm just raving about how he was, um, so important to the industry and such a pioneer, why would they get rid of him? And I think that when you dig into the story, you realize that a lot of it has to come from this, this cutting edge deal he made with Constellation Brands, which of course is the beer, wine and spirits giant behind Svedka Vodka and um, Corona, Corona Light and Corona Extra. Uh, and the way that that changed once that deal got put in place, the makeup of the board of directors and ostensibly shifted kind of the, the goals, if you will, of, of this company from where it was before as an emerging marijuana company to where it could be in the future as a maturing marijuana company. 
What was interesting to me about this, you mentioned Constellation. Um, of course, they gained four, I think, of the seven board seats with the $4 billion deal that was made. Um, they, of course, now own or have the potential to own more than 50% of the company moving forward if you include the warrants. So, really, a lot of the control went over to Constellation Brands because of that deal. Bruce Linton was really the key player that brought this deal into play. And now it's Constellation that ultimately gave him the boot. Um, of course, Bruce Linton. He's a pretty aggressive player. I think if you're any of the other major Canadian producers, you probably got the news and you're thinking, thank goodness this guy is out because he's killing us. Um, But at the same time, you mentioned just how passionate he was about the industry being an advocate. Canopy growth is really the bellwether of the entire industry right now because of Bruce Linton and his work and with just him being really the face of the industry. So, to... They did have a bad quarter, which we'll get into in a second. But I think for a lot of investors that have been watching this space, having someone like Bruce Linton on your side, um, really driving and moving and and really trying to expand globally, certainly a good thing. I think for Constellation, though, I know there was a question um, that was thrown out to the Constellation brand CEO about, is this a financials issue? Is this a more strategic issue? He seemed to back away from it being a financial issue. I've got some question marks on that because they came off of a bad quarter, Todd. Very, very bad quarter. And yeah, I mean, what is the corporate line, right? That he's that the this constellation CEO is not going to go on there and say he was horrible. We had to get rid of him because we were losing money left and right. He's not going to say that. And you know, you think about boilerplate. Just look at the press release, right? announcing that Linton was gone. He is stepping aside. Stepping down was the terminology. (laughs) Stepping down, down, you know. And I mean, that's just, it's kind of disingenuous, you know, when you see that, because it makes you think as an investor, oh, he's choosing to spend more time with his family or, you know, this is, he's obviously been foot on the gas for four years or wherever. And and now he just wants to to sort of ease back. He still owns a truckload of shares, so he'll still end up benefiting from canopy growth in the future. So it's it's a little misleading to investors to say step down. And I think that Linton took, you know, he took uh, he didn't he didn't like that. Um, he went on to CNBC that morning and said, hey, hey, just to be clear, I, I'm not stepping down. I, I was terminated. Um, and but he was very I mean, he struck and if you get chance, uh, listeners, go go and watch that interview because it was interesting. It was a very intriguing interview. He took a he struck a very realistic tone, you know, a very mature tone for someone who's built this baby up into this uh, this crazy successful company uh, and has now been asked to to say bye. <laughs> you know, I mean, they, I don't even know if they actually said anything in the press release about him serving as a consultant, which oftentimes when you're easing somebody out, you do. And I and I didn't. I don't think I saw any kind of a mention to that. Um, He said on the interview, quote, unquote here, I really think at the end of the day, sometimes entrepreneurs are entrepreneurs because they're not super employable. And I would say I probably don't have a resume because I like creating businesses and driving them. You don't always mesh well with everyone in the playpen. And I think probably what they're doing will probably be a better decision. And I mean, that's a very realistic tone. It's a logical tone. And granted, you know, However millions of shares he has, he doesn't want the stock to, to, to tumble on his exit. But I think what he's saying there is that, yeah, I'm a foot on the gas entrepreneur. And I, I, you need to be that way at the start of a company, to build the company into something 
um, that can take a leadership position. But the skill set that an entrepreneur like Linton brings to the table isn't necessarily the same skill set that you need to take the company to that next level as you're looking to expand out of Canada into a much larger playpen, right? Now you're talking global operations, European operations, moving, moving into the U.S. So I think that there's, there's, there's that component to it. And then in the back of your mind, like you said, well, it wasn't the financials, says the CEO of Constellation Brands. But he was obviously not happy about the fact that you know he took a 20-cent hit to his earnings last quarter because of that $174 million operating loss that uh, Canopy Growth um, reported in the quarter, which was just a massive, a massive loss. And that loss, I think, was punctuated because right at the end of the quarter, there was some, um, I guess you could say, scrutiny just related to the massive amount of share-based compensation uh, that was paid out. I think it was about a third of the losses that they saw in that particular quarter. That was more than many of the major ones. You're talking about Tilray, Aurora, Kronos combined, just in terms of share-based compensation. Um, Bruce Linton was very much of the opinion, I'm going to pay my employees one and a half times their salary in shares to make sure they're aligned with the business. He even came out and said, if I hadn't done that, the losses would have been even wider. And this was before he was terminated. So I think what you'll see with Constellation Brands, what I suspect will happen, they'll bring in someone with some industry experience, probably on the consumer packaged goods side, someone um, that is experienced in management to just kind of help take Canopy from startup to really mature um, growing global company, as you mentioned. Um, so I think it'll be very telling in who they bring in. Right now, Cosio um, Mark um, Zeculin, I think right now, is serving as the interim CEO, but they have said that they are starting a search to look for a new CEO. Bruce Linton, though, on the other hand, I watched that CNBC interview. He was asked, what are you going to do now? I would not be surprised if he started a new company he said he's not going to be doing it in Canada, but if he started a new company in the U.S. to get ahead of U.S. legalization of the shares that he still owns with Canopy, I think it's like 18 million shares right now. Um, of those shares, he said he's going to be holding on until, um, at least until the U.S. legalizes marijuana here. So he's pretty bullish about that happening. I could easily see him back up on the scene sooner rather than later in the U.S. with a brand new company. What was really fascinating, Shan? I know you're going you're gonna to figure out where I'm going with this. What was really fascinating to me in that conversation is someone actually had you know the nerve <laughs> to say so. What do you think as far as investments? Yes. You know, now that you're not affiliated with Canopy Growth anymore, what do you think are savvy buys? I mean, here you are, the ultimate industry insider, and he said, unsurprisingly. Canopy Growth. You know, he owns a ton of it. He's not going to say, yeah, sell it all. Um, he also mentioned Canopy Rivers, which is kind of the U.S. investment arm, if you will, of uh, Canopy Growth that was spent out. Uh, and then he mentioned Organogram, which could be the very biggest takeaway for all of our listeners here at The Motley Fool to take a very close look at Organogram. Because if someone like Bruce Linton is saying, you know, this is one of the best operators out there, um, and you want to try and have a diversified portfolio of marijuana stocks across a few different of these players, maybe Organogram is one is one to think about adding to a portfolio alongside Canopy Growth. Because again, Shannon, 
this news took the market by surprise. Shares are shares are trading at a discount. I think we're probably like twenty percent off the high. I think we're below forty dollars a share now on Canopy Growth. So theoretically, you could buy Canopy Growth on sale. You could buy Organogram on sale. Yeah, I think that's a very smart play. Organogram right now, one of the most efficient operators in the Canadian space, um, and they've really cornered a particular section of the market in Canada as well. So, that was a huge takeaway coming out of that interview. I think there's just going to be so much. Uh, we'll have to wait and see with what happens with Canopy Growth moving forward. I do think you'll have a very different company that's not going to be as aggressive without Bruce Linton behind, uh, behind the helm. But ultimately, I'm really, really curious to see where Bruce Linton ends up next. And we'll be sure to keep all of our listeners up to date as soon as we find out. But with that, let's uh, let's shift gears. Let's talk about gene therapy, Todd, because we got some news coming out of the ISTH conference, also known as the International Society of Thrombosis and Hemostasis Congress in Australia. Uh, specifically, we got key updates in the race to get a gene therapy to market for hemophilia. Todd, before we dive into the updates, though, can we just give everybody a brief overview of what hemophilia actually is? Right. So you have hemophilia A and hemophilia B. And both of those diseases are characterized by an inability to, pr- to produce um, a particular clotting factor. In the case of hemophilia A, it's clotting factor 8. In the case of hemophilia B, it's clotting factor 9. There are about 300,000 hemophilia A patients in the world. Uh, about half of those have severe or moderate disease, so 150,000 that require um, significant intervention, usually in the form of prophylactic uh, infusions of that missing factor, the, the missing factor A. There are about 30,000 uh, hemophilia B patients, um, and most of those patients do require some, some amount of infusions. And the real risk to these patients is that left untreated, if they cut themselves, they fall, they have a break, they start bleeding, they can't, their blood can't clot. It's, it's obviously a very emergent situation. If they have to have surgery, uh, all of these things come into play. So the goal over the past decade or so, there's been some pretty big advances. The goal has been, okay, let's figure out better ways to improve quality of life by, re- by allowing patients to have fewer infusions of these missing, missing factors, uh, clotting factors. Um, but because those infusions have to happen so often, Shannon, it's a, it's a very expensive disease. Uh, and it's prime as a result to be disrupted by gene therapy. I want to say that you know, you're talking about a half a million dollars for some of these drugs per year. And if you have a situation that's emergent, then you could easily surpass a million in these indications. So the ability to come up with a one-and-done type gene therapy that restores natively um, in vivo the pro- the production of those factors is is dis- it's wow P- potentially a huge advance um, for payers for patients for the entire system. And it's so encouraging to see and to hear about updates from multiple companies going after these one-and-done type of treatments. Granted, there's some questions about just how durable the response is for some of these treatments right now being studied. But just to know that we're at a place where potentially a patient could have a one-and-done gene therapy is just tremendous. Um, let's dive in with the first company, uh, Sangamo Therapeutics 
for our listeners out there. That's ticker symbol SGMO. They're partnered with Pfizer, a bit behind the competition just in terms of where they're at in their clinical trials. But they did give some updates in the conference related to their phase 1-2 trial. Todd, what did we see there? Sangamo has been such a battleground stock, and I'm sure investors who are listening have very strong opinions on uh, on both the bull side and the bear side of this. Uh, we'll, I guess we'll try and keep it to, to just the facts of what we're seeing within these this gene therapy and the update that they provided at the conference. They've just started dosing a few of these patients with their SB525 for severe hemophilia A. So that's the larger of the two patient populations that we were talking about. Um, so we're trying to restore factor eight production in these, in these patients. Two patients that were treated at the 3E13 dose, I'm just going to say 3E13 dose, um, they achieved normal sustained factor eight production levels. That's great. Uh, with no reporting bleeding events and no uh, need for factor infusions during the first 24, you know, at the 24 after 24 weeks uh, following that dose. Two additional patients have also been treated, and they're showing comparable results so far uh, to those first two patients. So the idea here is that, okay, SB525, uh, it, it restores what's considered to be normal production and potentially eliminating or significantly reducing average bleed. So certainly puts it in contention, but as you said, a little further behind another industry player that had some interesting data as well. Yeah, so still early, um, and this is just, for many of these companies, a very small subset of patients that we're looking at. But looking at the dosing plus lack of bleeding events, it does seem promising, particularly at 24 weeks. Um, and now that uh, Pfizer has former FDA commissioner Scott Gottlieb on its board, <laughs> I'd say prospects look even more promising for Sangamo right now, too. Yeah, that's a great point. And, you know, it sparked a lot of the addition of Gottlieb to the board did spark a lot of interest in saying, well, what what does this mean? Could Sangamo eventually be an acquisition target of Pfizer? I don't know. It's too early to say that, right? I mean, you got to get way further into the into the trials and, and test more people and, and get multi-year data, at least a year's worth of data before you can draw those conclusions. I mean, if you look at Biomarin, who put out um, data at the conference as well, I mean, they were able to provide, you know, inf information all the way out to three years post-dosing. So, like you mentioned earlier in, in the program, you said, you know, durability is an issue. And with gene therapies, right, that's part of the pricing structure. We know we're going to save you a half a million dollars a year on the prophylactic treatments, um, so how do we price that drug? Do we price it at three years worth of treatments and say, well, okay, give us 1.5 million? Or do we say, okay, well, if you're going to live 30 years, you know, what, how much do you price that? And I think it's going to come down to durability, like we saw with Bluebird Bio when they launched their drug. And they said, hey, yeah, we're going to charge 1.8 million, but we'll spread it over X number of years as long as the drug is working. Maybe we'll see a similar, similar thing with these uh, gene therapies and hemophilia, where they say as long as it's working, you keep paying us over a certain period of time some big number. And this is a five billion dollar market, so there's a there's a lot of there's a lot of money up for grabs for these companies. And Biomarin, they're they're likely to be the first to market, Shannon. Yeah, they're likely to be the first to market with their lead drug, Valrox, um, for also for hemophilia A. We talked about this on the show, I believe, back in May, Todd. You and I kind of broke down what we were seeing, but as you mentioned. Even in May, it was kind of a mixed bag of results because there were some questions just about durability. And pretty impressive response rates, but just how durable were those response rates? And so, for 
a lot of these companies, you talked about pricing becoming a factor of durability. When you look at the landscape in the field, when you add in more competition with similar efficacy, it is going to be about durability, and that's going to further put price pressure on pricing moving forward, too. So, to see a company like Biomarin, and that's ticker symbol BMRN, um, ahead of the field, likely to be the first, you do have to be very, very mindful of that durable response effect that we're seeing. Yeah, so what Biomarin said is they will file for FDA and EU approval of Valrox in the fourth quarter of this year, which means that you could get a decision if they expedite it as soon as early, you know, say June, June or July. It depends on the timing, obviously, for, for when they file, but six to 10 months after that is when you get the FDA to weigh in on it. Uh, in seven patients, 86% were bleed free for three years. That's, to me, that's pretty impressive. Even though you're showing, uh, lower levels of factor uh, expression in these patients. General thinking among clinicians is that if you're expressing at 12% or so, then you're fine. You know, you're probably not going to need a lot of infusions or some, uh, tremendous risk for bleeds. So, yeah, okay. So let's watch the duration. They're going to file at the end of the qu- at the end of the year. They'll file um, if they win approval potential to significantly capture a lot of this money. We'll also have to see whether or not, you know, we didn't get an update from Spark Therapeutics, which is being acquired by Roche. They also have a, 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 a drug that's that's put up, gene therapy that's put up similar kind of results so far. So this is, it's a horse race. You've got a few different players. Each of their viral vectors, the, the way they engineer them are a little bit different. It'll be interesting too, Shannon, to see whether or not can you follow one of these up with another one. So let's say the durability wanes and you're no longer paying for this Biomarins and Sangamos comes to market. Well, can we take, can we try Sangamos in these patients? So it could be, there could be room for multiple players. Totally agree. Could be room for multiple players. And that brings us to our third company update. Uh, and this is Unicure, and that's sticker symbol Q-U-R-E. Been a bumpy road for this gene therapy player over the years. For listeners who um, are not aware, this was actually the company that created and launched the first gene therapy, Glybera, back in 2012. But due to some commercial issues, mainly that $1 million price tag that was on it, never really got off the ground. Um, but Unicure has really come back around, has really focused on hemophilia, um, and I've got a couple of other programs too, but hemophilia is really where they are targeting with their lead product, AMT061. Uh, that's their next gen, and then they've got AMT060 that they're building off of. What did we see in terms of results there, Todd? All right, so this one is actually for, this, for HEMB. Uh, so the other two were updates for HEMA. This is for HEMB, so the smaller patient population, like I said, about 30,000 people that could theoretically benefit from it. Uh, they updated the phase 2B trial, uh, three patients. They achieved factor nine activity of 45% average at the 36-week mark. So again, above 12%, probably pretty good result. As a result, there were no bleeding events. There was no need for infusion in any of these patients. That's great. That's what you would want to see. Uh, so, you know, gold star on that. They also updated phase one, two for that prior generation drug, the AMT 060, and showed that over the past 12 months from baseline, there had been an 83% reduction in bleeding events. So, um, obviously, 
you know, you've got patients responding to that first gen. The idea is that 061, the second gen will be better uh, and maybe improve upon that, maybe get that into the 90% range. We have to wait and see. There's a phase three trial that started enrolling patients earlier this year of 061. So we're going to want as investors to keep an eye out for any kind of interim data uh, that gets released sometime in the next 12 months from that trial, because that will be our best clue for whether or not Unicor uh, is, is in a great shape here in that indication. It doesn't have it all alone, though, because Spark Therapeutics is also, which again, being acquired by Roche, also developing its own hemophilia B uh, gene therapy as well. And uh, this company also made headlines, I believe it was in June, for potential buyout rumors. Apparently, the company is exploring a sale earlier this year with uh, Roche and Spark announcing their acquisition. Uh, I think it just brought renewed focus into this space. A lot of analysts believing that this is the next company to be acquired by one of the major biopharma players that is looking to beef up its gene gene therapy plays. So, we'll have to wait and see there. But, of course, I mentioned they've got um, trials for Huntington's disease that they've just started and congestive heart failure as well. Um, So, yeah, a lot to look here and uh, will be really interesting to watch. Yeah, in the sidebar, too, because we're talking about that acquisition and you're starting to say, hey, what's going to happen here from here? Um, Probably going to want to take a look at some of these other players that are selling and marketing the prophylaxis infusion uh, medications at this point, because this, again, $5 billion dollars. These companies, I don't want to give that up. (laughs) So they were probably the ones who are going to be most eager to step in and buy these smaller clinical stage companies. Great point. So a lot to look forward to, a lot to keep our listeners up to date on. And again, if you take a step back, it's really just amazing to see how far we've come with gene therapy, especially in hemophilia. So really exciting. Uh, 2020 up ahead. But for you and I, Todd, that'll do it for this week's Industry Focus. I want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in. And as always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about. And The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. This show is being mixed by Austin Morgan. For Todd Campbell, I'm Shannon Jones. Thanks for listening and full on. Full on.